I am so grateful for the opportunity to explore one of the most important topics before the American public today, that of white privilege. And it is a topic that is not easy to discuss, uh, nor to completely understand. I have to say that I have never read a book that was more illuminating when it comes to white privilege than the book that I have been reading by one Brendan Kiley. The book is called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. Uh, Brendan Kiley, who is a uh, former high school teacher, uh, is now on the faculty of the Solstice Low Residency MFA program and uh, is someone who has uh, written extensively uh, on a number of different topics, but uh, he often circles around to questions of, of justice and race and so on and uh, has really explored this, uh, this important topic in, in a really remarkable fashion with this new book, uh, again called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. Brendan Kiley, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Really grateful to be here. Thank you so much. I want to make sure that people uh, know that you are the uh, co-author of the best-selling book All American Boys with uh, Jason Reynolds, who uh, writes a really interesting introduction to to this book. Uh, Brendan Kiley, I want to give you a chance to explain something a little odd about the subtitle of the book, which is, I said, reckoning with our white privilege. Um, the way it is uh, actually written is reckoning with my, and that word is crossed out, and our is sort of written in on top of it. Can you explain what's behind that kind of interesting uh, subtitle of my white privilege versus our white privilege? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I'm gonna, I want to contextualize it by, like this. And. Um, for so many of my friends of color, so many of my friends who are black or indigenous, um, they grew up having what I think many people commonly now understand as the talk, right? And it's a kind of ongoing conversation um, that, that many of their families are having that, uh, that are about navigating and trying to survive racism in America. Um, and when I was growing up as a young white boy in Massachusetts, um, I certainly had conversations about racism in my in my family, but but they were always about other people, and they were never asking me to reflect on and understand more about my own racial identity and how that impacts my life and the lives of others. Um, that I think is really essential and part of the motivating um, uh, reason for writing the book. And and to your question about the my versus our, the structure of the book is one. That, you know, I, I use stories from my own life um, as a way to kind of demonstrate uh, moments where I, I, what I, you know, didn't know that I didn't know, <laughs> um, and wish I had known more, uh, or moments from my own life where I made mistakes, or moments from my own life where, um, if I had had a, a greater understanding of my own privilege or of racism in general, I might have behaved in a different way. And it wasn't that I wanted to do anything wrong, but I just didn't know. Um, I use all that also, those moments from my own life, as a way to connect to how it's not just one moment in my life where I may or may not have understood something, it's how it's connected to a larger systemic, structural, institutional racism. Um, these are phrases that are big words in our, in our society today, but we, we shouldn't run away from them 
In fact, I think the point of the other talk is to find language for families that often have an uncomfortable time talking about this um, so that they can become um, more self-aware, so that they can be inspired to listen more and learn more, um, and hopefully feel motivated to get involved and act um, uh, with uh, people who have been already acting and doing the work for so long uh, for racial justice in our communities. Hmm. I want to be sure I say this and ask you about this uh, before we run out of time. Uh, I was just telling my uh, my, my my dad uh, during a, a, a dinner we had together a, a day before yesterday that that I really am not a fan of the term white privilege, and yeah. by, and what I mean by that is that that is a term that carries a connotation that I think uh, really rubs a whole lot of people the wrong way. When you think about, I mean, when we think about someone who is privileged, we, we think of people who are wealthy or well-connected or in, in some sort of way born with a silver spoon and have access to advantages and so on. And we, we think of a certain sort of person as being privileged. And, and I can think of a lot of white people in this country uh, where the last thing they feel like is that they're privileged. I mean, if they are living in poverty or struggling with painful, difficult issues of one kind or another, uh, for them to be labeled as privileged, uh, I mean, it just seems like the wrong word. It's not that I object to the concept whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, I think I understand the concept far better than I ever have before after reading your book. But in a sense, I regret... Not that I have a better alternative, but I very much regret that this is the term that we have come up with because it seems to me that it is a term that antagonizes many of the people who most need to come to terms with this. I wish there was another word for it. I wonder if you share those misgivings as well about just the actual word privilege as in white privilege. Do you also wish there was another yeah. word that wouldn't, in a sense, rub so many people the wrong way? I, I, absolutely. I really, I, I, I deeply appreciate what you're, you're getting at here. And it's, uh, I struggled with whether or not I should use the word in the book in general and certainly in the, in the subtitle, but it's a word that uh, is commonly used. And I wanted to make sure that people understood, at least where it was clear, uh, the, the topic that I wanted to discuss but I agree with you. I think it's a, I think it's a tricky and, and, and maybe, um, you know, a, a word that causes more problems than it should. Um, I really appreciate the poet and scholar Claudia Rankin. She talks about this, uh, this issue quite a bit as well, and she uh, mentions maybe we should just call what we're, what we're really trying to talk about here what it means to live as a white person in America. And again, that's not to put anyone on the defensive, but I want to give you a quick example of what I mean by this. And um, I walked into a bank in Washington, D.C. with a friend of mine. Uh, my friend is black. I'm white. Um, he went to the teller to do his transaction. The teller said, I have to get the bank manager for that. The bank manager came out from the back office. The bank manager was a white man like me. That bank manager walked right past my friend who was black and stuck his hand out to me to shake my hand, and he said, how can I help you, sir? Now, that is a, a moment in which I was assumed to be the person who was the client, even though I wasn't. Unfortunately, the term we use for this these days is white privilege. Um, but it isn't, it, it, it isn't about economics. It isn't about um, being wealthy. It's, 
it's about the the ways that uh, white people in our country have these interpersonal advantages that they don't probably even wish for, but still exist. And so, therefore, we have to find ways to talk about them so that we can do our job to dismantle them. Mm. Very well put. I, I want to mention that one of the most interesting stretches of the book is when you talk about embarking on essentially a media tour with your friend Jason Reynolds, who is black, and how time and time and time again you experienced what you just described in that bank. I mean, that was not an isolated instance, but one of a plethora of similar instances in which the two of you were together in various situations and scenarios and were very clearly seen differently and treated differently because you're white and he's black. And and after a while, it becomes something inescapable and irrefutable. I mean, you just can't argue with the reality of that. Uh, tell us more about that experience and, and in a sense, what you, what you took away from it, what you learned from it. I, I thank you for that, because it is, um, as I mentioned in the book, it, um, whether it was walking into schools or bookstores or hotels or going through airport security or uh, a bank or whatever it might be, um, time and time again, I, I was witnessing what it was like for Jason and I to walk side by side and for us to be experiencing today what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about at Gross Point High School in 1968 as the two Americas living side by side. And, you know, it, it, it can sound heady to, to think that, like, we're living in two different realities, but it's impossible to, as you say, it's undeniable for me to not recognize those two different realities when I'm experiencing it side by side with someone um, for what amounted to four months of travel together. Um, that is um, a, a, a powerful recognition of, of how racism affects our daily lives and how it also affects my life. And part of what I'm getting at here is that what, the way that racism impacts my life is it provides me with, um, even if they're undesired, advantages. The way that I was time and time again granted with immediate dignity and invitation in a way that, that Jason often was not. Um, for me, one of those takeaways is what I'm trying to get at in the book, which is um, I don't feel like racism is my fault, but I can't deny the way that it impacts my life and provides me with these unfair advantages. So I feel like it is also my responsibility to try to step up and do something to dismantle some of these unfair advantages, because I really believe that um, as, a, as a country um, and in communities all across this country, people do believe in fairness. People do believe in kindness. And we can do our part to help make sure that um, those values are, um, are experienced by uh, all of us in our community, not just um, uh, as the way that I do um, more immediately and more quickly. Well, and I think one of the things you want uh, for, for us who are white to do more of is ask questions about our own lives and the kind of advantages which we have had 
that we have never been conscious of before. At one point in the book, this is kind of how you frame it in terms of you looking at your at your own life uh, and, and whether or not you have enjoyed advantages of which you were not the least aware at the time. You ask, how did my being white affect how I got my first magazine gig as a child model, got into college, got my job as a high school teacher? How did it, how did it affect my first few jobs in book publishing before that? How did be, my being white affect my experience as a college student or as a high school student, as a teammate on my high school basketball team, on the cross-country road trip I took with a white friend? when we were 19. What about all of those keg parties the cops busted up when I was in high school when nothing happened? No consequences. Zilch. How did my being white play a role in all of those stories? And I think you are probably asking us to pose those questions to ourselves maybe for the first time in our lives. I wonder if you would mind sharing with our listeners the story that touched me above all others in your book, the story about when you finally got your driver's license and went on something of a joyride with some of your friends and got pulled over by a cop. Uh, would you mind telling the, the end of this story? Yeah, no, no problem. And just to put it in context, I, I, uh, I, I, I want to put this in context, uh, by the way, to say why I want to have this other talk versus what is so familiar in so many families of color um, uh, black families in particular, indigenous families, um, as the talk. So to share with you the story, um, I was driving a minivan full of uh, white boys like me, driving down the highway near where I lived and going um, 30 miles over the speed limit. And, um, uh, you know, that was irresponsible, uh, to say the least. Um, but I had never um, had a talk while growing up that made me um, nervous for my life when a police officer's lights flashed behind me. I was nervous because, of course, we're nervous when we get caught doing something we know we're not supposed to do, but I wasn't nervous for my life in the same way that so many of my friends of color are um, the minute they see those lights flash. And uh, I want to be careful to, to make sure I, I contextualize that first because I don't want to be callous to, to any listeners who have grown up with the seriousness and the gravity of that talk. Um, so while, as I, while I proceed with the story, um, the, you know, I, 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 eventually I pull over, um, and, and the police officer is asking me questions and, 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 um, and asks me to get out of the car and ask me if I've been drinking or any of these other things, and, and I say no. Um, and what I think is really important, as I share from the story, is that I did not get a ticket. I did not get a written warning. But that's not why I share the story. I share the story because, and I share the story often, and every time I do, it's like a little fish hook in my gut that just tugs and tugs and tugs to remind me what white privilege looks like in America, um, the police officer said to me, go home, be safe, and keep your friends safe. And what's so important about that is that the officer, and I'm grateful for this, I'm glad that this happened, that he looked at me with dignity. He looked at me with compassion. He looked at me with pity. And he essentially, in so many words, said, now here's a kid who deserves a second chance. Here's a kid who... Is probably a good kid um, who, if he, you know, is granted this opportunity to correct his ways, will do so in the in the future. And that's all true. I did. Uh, I've never driven like that ever again. I never want to endanger my friends' lives or anyone else's lives on the road. Um, but I wish for all young people my age, when they are going out and experiencing the thrill of of 
barreling around with their friends and, and driving and, and feeling freedom and, and whatnot, to be seen and to be given and granted the same dignity and compassion and pity that I was. Mm. It's just statistically not true that it is equitable across all racial lines. Um, it's irrefutable. Um, and that's part of the reason why so many black families in particular, indigenous families and, and, and myriad families of color have the talk with their children starting from a very young age about how to navigate and survive racism. And that's why I think the other talk is so important for white families like my own to engage in a similar kind of conversation, but to say this is how our racial identity plays a role here. And for us to understand that means that we can do more to help create a fairer system so that we all receive that same compassion, um, pity, and, and dignity in the way that I did in that moment. Hmm. We're speaking with Brendan Kiley, author of The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. One of the things you really helped me understand better uh, is the whole matter of race and how race is, and, and thinking in such racial terms, is in a sense a con. Uh, it, is a, it, is a, it is a falsehood, something completely made up constructed really so uh so a hierarchy could be constructed with some people at the top and some people at the bottom but but in fact the closer we look scientifically at human beings the less and less there really is this something called race that should should separate us and i think that's a very hard concept for most people including me to to wrap our heads around because yeah. You know, you just you look at someone from Sweden and you look from at somebody from Tanzania and it looks like they're very different. And that doesn't mean one is better than the other, but they do seem biologically very different where you really helped clarify this for me. And I think for other readers is when you talk about studies of people from different parts of of Asia or from different parts of Africa and the range of difference that there is versus the range of difference between others. I mean, it really helps kind of clarify this. Can you summarize for our listeners what I'm talking about? Sure. I'll, I'll put it in, in, in context this way. The, some of the figures that I share in the book are talking about how there's more genetic variation between um, uh, people in Western Africa than there might be with, uh, b- between uh, a person from Western Africa and a person from, from Europe. That it's in, in, in genetics, we're, we're talking about um, human beings are, 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 are collectively so, so much the same, um, genetically speaking, um, that when we get into the differences, they're, they're, they're pretty minuscule. One way to really understand this, though, to not get lost in the weeds about, about genetics, because I, you know, I am not a geneticist, certainly not my field of study, but I, I rely on, on other experts and um, I think about the uh, Association of American uh, Anthropological Bio- uh, Biologists um, and the way they, they characterize race uh, is, is something to, the, to this effect. But they talk about race as a legacy of, uh, of European colonialism. It is a social construct um, that was a part of uh, colonialism. And we can see that in the United States. We can see how race as a, as a construct was implemented. We're talking about human beings, right? But enslaved, uh, uh, enslaved people were designated as three-fifths of a human being, and that was codified into law as we were becoming uh, a nation. 
it's important to be clear about that because that's, or as, as Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, alludes to, racism constructs the concept of race, right? Racism comes first. And so that's part of our history. That's part of how race is constructed. There's no real race. There's no real difference between people from, um, uh, you know, uh, different parts of the world um, that's, that's of any um, significance. But who gets to say who's in power and who isn't? Now, that does play a role. And so while race may not be a biological fact, it is most definitely a social fact. And that is why we have to combat the racism that creates those social iniquities. And I think by having the other talk with our young white kids, we give them the language to feel empowered to, um, to A, have these conversations with a bit more courage and a bit more uh, authenticity, um, but also to feel motivated to, to try to participate in the work to create more ra- racial equity with all the folks who have been working so hard for so long already. Hmm. One of the statistics you cited was uh, a study that there were two so-called white scientists of European ancestry who had more genetic variation between them than either of them had with a third scientist who was Asian-Korean. So just at a glance, one would have guessed that there would have been this great difference, and yet uh, there was more difference between, for instance, the one from Bulgaria and the one from Luxembourg or wherever. But, but I mean, it just throws into question the whole matter of how we have separated people for, for, for centuries. And you call yep. it at one point a conspiracy to put white people and white men in particular at the top of the food chain again and again and again by writing white privilege into laws and social customs again and again and again. And one of the things you're saying in your book is that part of the problem that perpetuates this is that we as white people have such a hard time talking about this and have such a hard time just talking about being white. (laughs) And at the same time, you tell us that, in a sense, there there really is no such thing as being white. There never was such a thing right. as being white. And yet this, it's this thing that we need to talk about. Uh, help us make sense of that. Yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate that because, and, and even the, the, the quote that you just mentioned there, it requires some context, right? Because I think some listeners might hear that and, and think that there's, um, that I'm kind of demonizing white men in some way. And that's that's not at all what, what the other talk is about. And, and I, I think to, to put this in context, I also want to go back to what you were, the conversation you were having with your father about the, you know, the, the, the trickiness of, of a word like privilege. And I'm going to share with you um, what I also share in the book is um, about my grandfather. Now, my grandfather grew up in an Irish immigrant household in western Massachusetts. Um, he's a, he was a soldier in World War II, and he fought in World War II, and he, and he came home and he was able to... Uh, take advantage of uh, the benefits of the GI Bill um, that gave him access to higher education loans um, and access to, uh, you know, getting an advanced degree in chemistry. Um, It also granted him uh, home loans um, at an incredible rate and and the invitation to begin buying homes in uh, rapidly developing and and value-increasing neighborhoods and cities um, in in western New York. these were benefits that his fellow uh, veterans who were black, indigenous, and other uh, folks of color did not have access to in the same way. Now, that does not diminish 
all the hard work that my grandfather did to earn that degree, to go try to build the, the home, to create a career and a life, and to provide for my father and his five siblings. And, you know, I love my grandfather, and I love what he did, and, and I admire him, and he's a hero of mine. And it's also true that he had um, access to advantages that many other people who are people of color did not have. It's, this is what the other talk is about. It's not about dismissing people. It's about us being honest about what those structural advantages are. And to think about how we can, if we can talk about them, maybe we can do something about them so that it is fairer and more equitable um, for all. Uh, I think it's important to clarify that so that we're not hung up on, you know, words like privilege. Um, we're not hung up on, oh, it's not my fault, I didn't create this, or we're not hung up on, I don't want to feel bad. It's not about any of those things. Those are distractions. Having the other talk is a way to feel empowered to, to do the right thing to make our communities fairer for all. Hmm. As you write at one point, but it's not my fault, some of you might be thinking. I didn't make this happen, so why do I have to do something about it? Isn't it somebody else's responsibility? Well, if you are white like me, even though we didn't start this whole racially unjust mess, the mess was designed to provide us today with an entire system of systemic racism rigged in our favor, meaning you and I inherited stupidly unfair amounts of privilege. And if we don't help eradicate racial injustice, we're actually helping maintain it. In fact, we could even be helping it get worse. I appreciate the way in which you lay all that out so frankly, because I really think you are well aware of the resistance which uh, some of this uh, in, in, in engenders, even from otherwise, you know, well-meaning and decent people. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I really think you're taking us into important territory. In your author's note, at the end of the book, you say, I felt conflicted when I set out to write this book. Um, tell us more about that conflicted state in which you wrote this book. And as you finish the book, do you feel any less conflicted? <laughs> uh, well, the answer to that one is easier. No, I still feel conflicted, but I think that's okay. I think it's important for us to try to be um, in a search for more self-awareness to be uh, constantly open to critique. I remember as a high school teacher, I worked in a high school for 10 years, I wanted to be the best teacher I could possibly be. And in order to, to do that, it meant that I had to listen to feedback from students, from their parents, from other teachers, from administrators, so that I could be open to, to, to hearing that, so that I could be the, the best teacher that I could be, as, as I wanted to be. And I, and I think as someone who is trying to have conversations about racial justice, and particularly as a white person, um, I want to I want to leave myself open to that critique uh, from others, um, so that I can do better. Because that's that's the goal here, right? Um, that's why I'm still conflicted. But that's why I began this project conflicted as well. And uh, you know, to, just to be to be honest, thinking about how much work is out there already written by folks of color who um, have written extensively about racism, um, I, I I felt conflicted because. I, I want to make sure that, that all of your listeners are reading those works and, um, and, and, and listening to the folks of color in their own communities, if they're white like me, um, so that uh, we're already relying on the leaders of this conversation who've been leading for so long. And yet, I think it's also important that white folks like me um, step up 
and try to engage in these conversations um, and, and, and step out of the silence that we may have remained in for so long. So while I felt conflicted because I didn't want to take away any space from people who have been leading the conversation, I also wanted to make sure that I didn't dodge the call to action that I have heard from so many people of color, from so many communities of color, and help find a language to engage white folks more in conversations about racial justice in their communities. Mm. And you do give us tangible ways to work and, uh, and, and substantial reason for hope. The book, again, is The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege, and the author, Brendan Kiley. Brendan Kiley, thank you so much for giving the world this important book, and thanks for being part of the morning show today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I deeply appreciate it.